Well, we are beginning a new four-week sermon series today, and the series is called Family. Now, family involves whether or not you're single, you're married, you're, you're divorced, you have kids, you don't have kids, you're an empty nester, or some combination thereof about all of those things, you're still part of a family. You were born into a family, maybe you were adopted as a kid, you were adopted into a family, and if you are a Christian, you are a part of the family of God. And so regardless of your background or regardless of what circumstances or situation you might, call your, you might find yourself in, this series is still for you because all of us will find ourselves in one way or another connected or a part of a group of people that we refer to as family. Now, over the summer, those of you who are with us, you know that we took all summer long to focus on just one little book of the Bible. We took 13 weeks to dive into the book of First John. Well, for this series, we are going to take four weeks to dive into one little chapter in the book of Joshua. Joshua 24. Now, if you're trying to find Joshua, it is the sixth book of the Bible. So kind of go towards the beginning. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Joshua comes right after that. And Joshua 24 is the last chapter of that book. So Joshua 24, the final chapter of the book of Joshua. Now, who was Joshua? Maybe some of you know the, the famous song of Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, right? But deep down, you know, who was this man? Who was Joshua? Joshua was the leader of Israel, and he took over from Moses after Moses died. So if you've heard the name Moses before, Moses was the, the first leader of Israel, and after Moses died, Joshua took over command. Now, his primary responsibility was to lead the Israelites into the promised land. They had been living as slaves in Egypt. They escaped slavery, and they entered into the wilderness for 40 years, all under Moses' command. After Moses had died, they prepared to enter into the land of Israel, and Joshua then took over responsibility to lead the Israelites into this land of promise. Now, in this chapter that we're about to take a look at, Joshua 24, Joshua has called all of the leaders of the Israelites together. So, you know, imagine maybe he sent out a group text message or something and wanted everybody to gather around because he had this grand speech that he needed to make sure that every leader heard. It's sort of like, you know, imagine a school principal gathering all the seniors together at the end of the year, right? He wants them to make sure that they hear that last final speech before they enter out into the, into, into the, the real world, right? Well, over the course of this month, we're going to be looking at some of Joshua's words in this famous speech from Joshua 24, and some of you have perhaps heard a very famous part of this speech. Maybe you've seen this on a sign posted up on somebody's wall or at Hobby Lobby or at some arts and crafts store or something. You never knew where it came from. There's this famous line in this speech where Joshua declares to everybody who's listening, he says this line, and if you know it, you can say it with me. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We're going to be building up to that little that line that Joshua makes in the course of this series. And we're also then asking the question, what can we learn from Joshua that will then equip us and equip our families and the unique households that we might be a part of as we seek to become healthy disciples of Jesus? Now, go ahead and take a look at the very beginning of, of chapter 24, verse 1. The very beginning of chapter 24 
tells us very, very plainly the situation. Joshua assembles the Israelites, and this is what it says. Verse 1, it says, Joshua assembled all of the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, the leaders, the judges, and the officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Okay, quick quiz. Where did Joshua assemble the tribes of Israel? The answer's on the screen. Shechem. Now, why in the world does that matter? If you want to go, go ahead, say that word, Shechem. Right? Say it like you mean it, right? That's the name of the Shechem. Why did Joshua assemble the leaders there? Now, at first glance, whenever we're reading the, de- the text, sometimes we, we read these verses and we just kind of go right over it. They're, they say towns or names that we don't really know, and so we don't really think much of it. But the very fact that Joshua is about to gather the Israelites and give a speech at this place is radically important, radically significant. You know, if you think about it, when somebody gives a speech, geography matters, doesn't it? Politicians... They go to great lengths to choose where they give their speech, right? You know, if if a politician's going to give a speech about freedom, that speech about freedom has this different punch to it if they choose to give it in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, as opposed to, say, giving the exact same speech in some unknown office building, right? Location matters. Geography matters. And the same is true as what we see going on here in Joshua. Now, what's so important about Shechem? Well, in a sense, the town of Shechem, the village of Shechem, the community of Shechem, was where Israel got its start in the first place. Now, here's why. The father of Israel, the the, the man who who God called and said that he was going to be the father of a mighty nation, and ultimately that nation became known as the Israelites, his name was Abraham. And in Genesis 12, we see God calling Abram. Abram, Abraham, he was known by two names. And so take a look at what it says about this in Genesis 12, verse 6 to 7. Up on the screen, it says, Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at, where? Shechem. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land, not the Israelites, the Canaanites. And the Lord appeared and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. And so... Abram built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. This location, Shechem, was the place where God had promised Abraham over 600 years before, before Joshua was alive. Over 600 years previously, he made this promise to his ancestor that he was going to give this, this land to this family, to this nation, to the Israelites. And Joshua and the Israelites are now on the cusp of entering into this land that God had promised them in the, at the beginning. That's why it's called, by the way, the promised land, because God promised this land to Abraham and his descendants. And Joshua is about to give a speech where the promise is about to be fulfilled. It's the culmination of the promise, and he chooses to give that speech in the very location where the promise was made in the first place. And so as the Israelites are gathering to hear what Joshua is about to declare, to hear what Joshua is about to say, The very fact of where they stand is a reminder of the promise of God. And Joshua is about to challenge the Israelites to renew their commitment to God on the very spot where God made a commitment to to this people 600 years previously. 
He's going to ask the elders and the leaders and the judges and the officials of Israel to recommit themselves to God on the very spot where God committed to them. And as a result, for the people hearing what Joshua is about to say, they know that this isn't just some random place. For them, this is a pilgrimage. They are going to a holy spot where God himself spoke to their ancestor hundreds of years ago. And they are about to see the fulfillment of the promise of God. And Joshua then begins his speech. If you're with me, in Joshua 24, starting with verse 2, Joshua says, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says long ago, your ancestors including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I, the Lord, gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau, but Jacob and his family went down to Egypt. Then I, the Lord, sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians but what I did there, and I brought you out. When I brought your people out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the wilderness for a long time. I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them from before you, and you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you. But I would not listen to Balaam. So he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hands. And then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. But I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you, also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword or bow. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil, and cities you did not build, and you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plants. All right, we're going to stop there for today. But did you notice, as Joshua was giving this speech, it, did it, was, was Joshua the one who was speaking about what he did for the Israelites, or no? What? At the very beginning of the speech, Joshua declares, this is what the Lord says to all of us through me, right? The word of God is speaking through Joshua here, declaring to the Israelites what it is that God had done for them. Now, let's take a real quick summary. And if you're taking a look at the text in your Bible, this will help you as you're kind of trying to grasp, your, grasp what it is that Joshua just said. In those opening verses, verses two through four, we're reminded of what God had did for Abraham in the very formation of Israel. The Lord says, this is what I did. I called Abraham. And then in verses five to seven, the Lord reminds the people of Israel what he did for Moses and for Aaron and for the people's experience as slaves in Egypt and how he delivered them from slavery. 
And then in verses 8 through 10, he describes their time in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the wilderness as they're wandering around and God is protecting them and caring for them. And then in verses 11 through 13, he reminds them as when they entered officially into the promised land and they crossed over the Jordan River and they began the conquest of defeating and driving out other peoples so that they might inherit the land that God had given them. Now, the point of this big his history reminder is to highlight for the Israelites that everything that they have accomplished, everything that has come up to this point as they are about to enter into the promised land, all of it is meant to overwhelmingly highlight the presence of God's actions through it all. God's reminding the Israelites from the very beginning, who was it that formed Israel? It was God. Who was it that delivered you from slavery? God. Who was it who protected you and led you through the wilderness? God. Who was it that led you to the promised land? God. Just, just, I mean, notice the number of times. If you were, you know, remember when we were kind of circling and underlying parts in our Bibles. Maybe do this if you're following along. Notice how many times in just those 13 verses that God uses the first singular person where he says, I did this for you. I took your father Abraham. I led you throughout Canaan. I gave him Isaac. I gave Jacob to Esau. I assigned the hill country. I sent Moses and Aaron, right? In fact, if you're curious, it's 21 times. 21 times in those 13 verses. God is the singular subject of the action. God is declaring to the people of Israel that he is the one who has been at work in all of this history. That Israel would not be in the promised land if it wasn't for the actions of God, that Israel would not be where they are at today if God had not been doing things for them, sometimes obviously and sometimes very hidden, that God is the one doing things to lead them to the place where they are today. The Israelites need to be reminded that the land and their future was not because of their own strength. It was not because of their own power. It was not because they had some grand, wonderful, you know, amazing idea or incredible talent or skill and they accomplished something grand or great because of it. All of it was because of God. Everything about where they are to this day was because of God. They didn't earn it. In fact, they did plenty to deserve the opposite of what God has to give them. Joshua wants the people to never forget that they owe everything that they have to God. There's a word that we often use in Christianese, Christian language, when we're talking about this concept. That everything that we have, we don't deserve. Everything that we've been given, we don't deserve. Everything that we have, we can't claim credit for it. The word is grace. Joshua is calling the people of Israel to remember that they are only who they are and they are only where they are because of the grace of God. He's calling them to fully accept grace and to enter into the promised land as a nation built on grace. And he's calling and will call for every household and every family and every tribe and every clan to be a nation that lives in the knowledge of God's grace. And when we start thinking about this for you and I today, it starts raising these questions. Well, do I think of my own life in terms of grace? Do I think of my own family in terms of the grace of God? Do I look backwards and see the evidence of God's grace in my life? 
a family or a household that is based on grace will constantly realize and remember that everything they have is because of God. A family or a household that is built on grace will constantly realize and remember that everything they have is because of the grace of God. The air in your lungs, you did nothing to deserve it. It's the grace of God. The food on the table, the grace of God. The people who nurtured you when you were young, the people who came alongside you when you needed help the most, the people in your lives that you never in a million years would have expected that they were going to become a major impact person for you. It's all because of the grace of God. How do we form households and families to be rooted in the grace of God? Well, it starts with this. We remember who you were. You have to remember where you came from. You have to remember who you were before you came to know the grace of God. Verse 3 of this chapter that we read, Joshua declares that the Lord is speaking and, he, and, and God's speaking in verse 3. He says, But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. You know, in, in this verse, Joshua is reminding the Israelites to look back. To look back and remember that their ancestor, Abraham, the father of, the, of this nation, the father of Israel, that he did not begin a family, he did not begin this grand nation of Israel because he sat down one day and decided he wanted to make some big strategic plan with a 10-year goals and all this stuff and said, yep, I'm going to have a family of Israel that are called the Israelites someday. No, 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 no. Abraham did not take the initiative. This wasn't Abraham's idea at all. Whose idea was it to call Abraham and declare that he would be the father of Israel someday? It was God's. God chose Abraham and took him and used him for this purpose. Grace challenges us to constantly look backwards and remember who we were so that we can then see how God took the initiative to use us and move us and transform us into who we are today. In fact, the most important and significant events throughout all of the Bible and of history are ones when God takes the initiative, not human beings. When humans take the initiative, it usually doesn't end up all that, all that well. Christianity is rooted in the conviction that God took the initiative first, that God moved towards humans rather than humans moving towards God. In fact, we celebrate it every Christmas John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Who came to be with people? God. The Word. The Word made flesh. Jesus Christ, born of a virgin. Who decided to come towards human beings? God. Humans did not figure out a way to get to God. Rather, God chose to come and be among us. And similarly, God's love for us is not something that we deserve. It's not something that we can figure out. It's not something that we can put all the pieces together and plug it into the machine and up, there we get it. Now God loves me. No, 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 no. God's love is for us even when we don't deserve it. God comes towards us even when we don't deserve it. God gives his love for us even when we don't deserve it. It says in Romans 5, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners... 
Christ died for us. Not when we had it all figured out and got rid of our sin, Christ died for us. Not when we, you know, made sure that everything in our lives was picture perfect and nobody had any problems that decided that Christ died for us. No, in the midst of the messiness of our lives, Christ died for us. The Lord is a God of grace, and a family built on grace regularly looks backwards to see the evidence of God's grace in your life. You remember who you used to be, and you see God's grace changing you into who you are today. I mean, have, how many of you have ever, ever stopped to just look back and reflect on where you were and who you were one year ago? Who were you and where were you five years ago? Ten years ago? Twenty years ago? Thirty years ago? Forty years ago? When you stop and you look backwards, it gives you this incredible perspective on the places and then on the ways in which God has been leading you and guiding you and working in your life all along. Joshua is reminding the Israelites who they were 40 plus years ago. He's saying, look, you know, remember when you all were, were in the wilderness and you had, didn't have a, didn't, had no idea what you were doing, but God was there. Remember when you were all slaves in Egypt and you were crying out for help, oh, God was there. And even look farther back, remember when, before any of you were born, God was even already at work in our ancestors preparing the way. God was there. Who did you used to be and how has God's grace led you forward? You know, 20 years ago, I was a 13-year-old kid who was shy, and I didn't know how to make any friends. And I was terrified of speaking in front of people. Ten years ago, I was a 23-year-old arrogant young adult who thought he knew everything. You've never met one of those before, have you? Everything that I did was about trying to impress people around me. I had no clue that I was so radically insecure. But Jesus rescued me from my fear. He gave me confidence and courage, and he made me realize that maybe I do have what it takes to, to make friends. Jesus saved me from that arrogant insecurity. I still remember the day when it smacked me like a, like a ton of bricks across the face when I realized, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm not that smart of, after all. I'm just a, a scared, insecure little young man. Jesus brought people into my life that I had no intention or had, could not have told you how it was that they were going to be such a game changer for me. Mentors who challenged me, pastors who came alongside me, friends that I never would have sought out on my own came along and to help inform me and, and guide me and lead me. And the more I went to church, the more I read my Bible, the more I prayed, the more I became aware of God's grace in my life. You know, one of the reasons, some of you know this, one of the reasons that I keep a journal, I love the journal, I, I, I try to journal as often as I can, one of the reasons why I like to keep a journal is because I'm able to look backwards very frequently on where God, what God was doing in my life in the past. Just this week, I pulled a journal off of my shelf from seven or eight years ago, and I just was reading a couple entries, just, oh my, you know, shocked that, man, that's what I was going through at that point in my life, and here I am today. The more you remember where you were and what God was doing in your life in the past, the more you begin to see the evidence of the grace of God. To be a grace-based family, you have to be willing to reveal the places where God's grace got you through. You have to be willing to look backwards. You have to be willing to see God's grace in your life. You stop and you look backwards and you say, wow, how in the world did God get us through that tragedy? 
oh my goodness, how did God get us through that season of our family? And you begin to review and you see God's grace and you ask yourself, wow, what was God doing in our lives? And then it makes you pause and it makes you stop and you think, well, what might God be doing right now? What are you doing in your home that regularly looks back to who you were and what God did for you? Now, very similar, it's already up on the screen, very similar to this. As we look backwards and we see and remember who we were, a grace-based family also learns to trust that God's timing is perfect. And this takes practice. It's part, of, it's part of what happens when you look backwards and you see the places where God was at work in your life and then you begin to realize, oh my goodness, I, God is up to something. God is doing something. That God's timing is perfect. Joshua says this in, ver, in verse 13, the very end of what we read. He says, uh, the Lord says through Joshua, God says, I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build and you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Now, as we took a look at Joshua, he's rehearsing the grace of God. He's rehearsing the work of God in the Israelites' past. But he's reminding all of the Israelites that their past was not all sunshines and roses. Amen, everybody? When you look back on your past and you look back at your history, it's not always pleasant. It's not all fun and exciting. You know, we, t we tend to have selective memories when we look backwards often. And we forget the hard stuff. It took hundreds of years for God's promise to Abraham to be fulfilled. According to Exodus 1240, another uh, earlier in the Bible, the people of Israel, they were in slavery in Egypt. You know for how long? 430 years. How many generations of people were wondering, God, when are you going to show up and do something? How many of you have found yourself asking occasionally, God, when are you going to show up and do something? There will be times when your family in your household asks that question, sometimes out loud together. God, when are you going to show up and do something? If grace means knowing that God has acted for us even when we least deserved it, it also means trusting that God knows when to do things for us that we cannot do for, itself, for ourselves. It means trusting that God's time is perfect. Can you go back to the next slide? Previous slide, Sean? Thanks. It means living with this tension of unanswered questions. When we ask that question, God, when are you going to show up and do something? Sometimes we have to be willing to live with this tension that not all of our questions are going to get answered in the here and the now. It means sometimes having to admit this terrifying answer. Some of you have perhaps said these words this week. When someone in your household or your family asks a question, maybe you ask the question, when is God going to show up and do something? It means sometimes having to admit with these three words, I don't know. I remember a time in my own life when a long-term friendship had fallen apart. And I was going through my own little small existential crisis. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. My, my family was moving to a new town. So we were you know, going through all these all kinds of transitions and stress and whatnot. There was a lot going on. And I remember I was driving somewhere. 
and I was asking some one of those questions, God, when are you going to show up and do something? I don't, I don't remember how I asked it, but I was thinking those, in those terms. And then their song came on the radio. I wasn't even listening all that closely. I, I wasn't even the one who had, uh, had that radio station on. It was the person who, was, who drove the car before me, and they left it on, right? And this, the song that came on, there's a portion. Here's, here's a portion of the lyrics from the song. The song was called God is God, Okay. Very simple title, God is God. But here's a portion of the lyrics from this song that I'll never forget. It, said, it goes like this. It says, the pain feels like a curtain on the things I once called certain. And have you ever been there before? And I have to say the words I fear the most. I just don't know. And then the chorus of the song goes like this. God is God. I am not. I can only see a part of the picture he is painting. God is God. I am man. And so I will never understand it all. For only God is God. Can you imagine the impact on your family and on your life if you regularly rehearsed truths like that? That God's timing is perfect, and I might not understand what is happening, or where all this is going, or why this is taking place, but I trust that God is God, and he can see the picture that he's painting. Joshua makes clear that the life of faith is an endurance race, not a sprint, and that many times things come slowly in the life of faith. And many times we have to learn how to wait on the Lord. Throughout the Bible, throughout the Psalms, throughout the prophets, we see time and time again people urging the people of God to wait on the Lord. So much so that waiting on the Lord tends to be synonymous with actually having faith in God at all. So how are you and your house regularly putting your trust in God's timing? Now lastly, another characteristic of a grace-based family is that they know who is doing the fighting. They know that God is fighting for you. He says in verse 11, you crossed the Jordan and you came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho, they fought against you, as did also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Gergashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. How many of you weren't sure I was going to say those correctly? But what does then God say? He says... I gave them into your hands, right? God didn't say, oh, but you did it all. Great job, Israelites, you did it. No, God says, no. Who was doing the fighting? I gave them into your hands. After 40 years of wandering in the desert, the people of Israel crossed the Jordan River into the promised land, but they were faced with walled cities, fortified armies, and they began wondering, how in the world are we going to defeat these obstacles? How in the world are we going to overcome these obstacles that are in front of us? And just because just when they thought they were finally where they were going, they are faced with these unscalable obstacles. Just when we think things are starting to look good, just when we think life is finally starting to feel more put together, we tend to face unscalable obstacles. The doctor calls with the test results. Your spouse just walks out the door on you. The boss says, we're terminating your position. The police show up at the door with bad news. Obstacles. 
like that that are so totally and utterly unpredictable, they can, some, they can just completely deplete us, can't they? Where our energy and motivation, they're just completely gone. The tank is empty. We've got no fight left in us. We just want to throw in the towel and call it a day. But remember Joshua's words. Because who is doing the fighting? Is it you? Or is it God? You know, I often wonder if when when Joshua was preparing to go into the promised land, I wonder if he looked backwards to this time when the Israelites escaped Egypt. And, and the Lord had talked a little bit about it in those opening verses when he says, I delivered you from slavery in Egypt. You, you escaped the Egyptians and you entered into the wilderness, right? But if we go back to that story, you might remember that as the Israelites are escaping Egypt, they start to head out into the wilderness, and then they come to this unscalable obstacle known as the Red Sea, this huge body of water that's going to take them just you know, weeks and weeks and weeks to try to figure out a way that they could walk around it. But suddenly they don't have time to do that because they look backwards. And you know what they see? They see the Egyptian army who had changed their minds is now chasing them down and wanting to just slaughter them all right there in the middle of the wilderness rather than let them escape. And when the moment of this happens, the Israelites start to panic because they look forwards and all they can see is this huge body of water and they don't know where to go. They look backwards and they see their enemies chasing them and they have nowhere to go. But then here's what the Bible says this. I don't have this up on your screens. I just put it in this morning. But here's what the Bible tells us. Exodus 14 says this. It says, as Pharaoh and the Egyptians approached the Israelites, the Israelites looked up and they saw the Egyptians marching after them and they were terrified and they cried out to the Lord. And then they said to Moses, was it because there was no graves in Egypt? You brought us out here in the desert to die. What have you done bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you, just leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It'd be better for us to serve them than to die out here in the desert. You hear the unscalable obstacles are, are making the, the Israelites start to just give up hope. Not wanting to, to saying we, we would have rather stayed in slavery than have to deal with the challenges out here with freedom. But then Moses answers the people. Moses says to the Israelites, and Joshua would have been there. And he would have been there and would have remembered what Moses did. Moses says, do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance of the Lord that he will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. A grace-based family knows how to let the Lord do the fighting. And they know when they need to sometimes just be still. They also know when God's calling them to rise and fight and do something, even if they don't, even if what God's asking them to do doesn't make any sense in the world. And so I ask you, how are you training yourself and how are you training your household to learn how to discern when God is calling you to be still and let him do the fighting? How are you training yourself and the people in your life to listen to the voice of God so that you might know when it is that God's calling you to be still so that he will do the fighting for you? You know, God's been gracious to all of us. And sometimes it's so easy to remember this when we look back and we see the times where God's been at work and other times it's insanely difficult. But it's in those difficult times 
Those times where we're asking God, where are you? Why don't you show up and do something? Those times where all we can see are the obstacles. Those times where the grace of God feels so distant from our lives. Those are the times when we often need something in our lives that is tangible to remind us of God's faithfulness and grace in the past. You know, earlier in the book of Joshua, we didn't take a look at this, but earlier in the the book, the people of Israel and Joshua, they cross over the Jordan River, and what God asks Joshua to do is to build an altar of stones whenever, whenever they get across the river. And so that every time that they would see that altar, they would remember what God had done. When you walked through the doors this morning, you should have been given a stone. Find it right now. Hopefully you didn't throw it. There are times in the Old Testament when we see God calling the people to find a stone, build a stone altar, and many times to actually even lift up the stone as a reminder of God's grace, as a reminder of God's faithfulness, so that whenever they look at that stone, they will stop and pause and remember that God got me through that time and he can get me through this one. The Israelites would often see the stone, they'd remember God's grace in their lives. Now in the Bible, many times those stones that are used to build altars or to be reminders of of God's grace in the past, those stones were sometimes referred to as stones of help. Okay? A stone of help, a reminder when God helped me in the past by his grace. Now in Hebrew, the phrase stone of help Sounds like this. Eben Haezer. Stone of help in Hebrew sounds like this. Eben Haezer. Which in English came to be known as Ebenezer. Eben Haezer. Eben Ezer. Ebenezer. Some of you perhaps know there's an old hymn Come thou fount of every blessing. And it says this. Here I raise my Ebenezer, my stone of help. Here by thy great help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. And Ebenezer is a stone of help, and when the Israelites looked at that stone, they remembered God's faithfulness and grace. No matter what we are experiencing in the moment right now, we can remember that by God's sovereign grace, we will worship him. Because what what does the opening lines of that grand hymn say? Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. You were given a stone when you walked in, and here's what I want each of you to do with this stone today. I want you to go home, I want you to find a marker, and I want you to write on this stone something that reminds you of how God's grace got you through. Maybe as a family, you guys look at one another and you say, man, do you guys remember when dad lost his job? We had no idea what we were going to do. And we prayed, and we prayed, and we prayed, and then one day we got that phone call, and we got a job. Maybe you want to write dad's job on your stone. Or maybe you're someone, and you want to talk to your teenagers. You want to talk to to, 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 to kids that, that remember working through school during the pandemic. 
and how stressful and painful and frustrating it was. And maybe you just want to write in your stone, you know, pandemic years of how God led you through those years, even though you had no idea how they were going to end up. Maybe just between you and your spouse or even you yourself by alone, you just need to write something simple on that stone, like faithfulness, right? To remind you that God's faithfulness has always been there to get you through. Maybe you need to say to yourself, maybe you're going through a time right now where you don't know what to write on that stone. And all that you might need to be able to write on that is grace. As a reminder that God's grace is still there and will lead you through. Because someday, you know, you're going to be cleaning out your closet. You're going to be leaving that rock on your, on your dresser. You're going to put it in the, that drawer. And someday you're going to be going through something and you pull open that drawer. You'll see that rock in that dresser and you're going to say, oh my goodness, do you remember? Do you remember the day when we thought we had lost all hope, but then Jesus showed up and got us through it? Do you remember when we thought we had no idea how we were going to get through this, but then God showed up and he got us through it. So put that rock somewhere where you're going to see it and you're going to remember it. Talk to your kids about it. Talk to your family about it. Talk to your neighbors about it. Because someday that, that rock, you just might pass it to the next generation. And they'll see that rock and they'll remember that time when God's grace was at work in mom's life and grandpa's life. And they'll know that there's a God who loves them and will be there for them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you and we ask that you would be for us the God who will be and provide for us stones of help in our lives. Lord, as we grip these stones in our hands, as we feel the, either the rough or the smooth texture, might you just be reflecting and, or helping us to reflect where you are at work in our lives so that we might know what it is that we need to put down. In Jesus' name, amen.